Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event, Where's the Ross Now? This is part of the sixth LSE Space for Thought Festival, which began yesterday and runs until Saturday, March the 1st, this Saturday. Uh, the theme of the festival as a whole is reflections, and of course the subject of tonight's event is John Steinbeck's novel of the Great Depression, the extraordinary controversial uh, Grapes of Wrath, published in 1939. Uh, my name is Michael Keynes, and I'm an editor at the Times Literary Supplement. Um, I'm joined here by Stephen Fender, Honorary Professor of English at UCL, John Sutherland, Emeritus Lord Northcliffe Professor, also at UCL, and uh, two novelists, Maggie G and Patrick Flannery. I'm going to introduce them all fully in a moment, but before that, uh, let's do the housekeeping. Um, you don't need to turn your phones off, um, but just put them on silent, please, if you haven't done so already. And if you feel the urgent need to tweet, you can do so. There's a hashtag for the festival, which is hash LSE Fest, F-E-S-T. I can see you all memorising that right now. Very important information. Uh, tonight's event will be uh, recorded, though... Um, so, uh, you know, try and speak nice and clearly. Um, it may be turned into a podcast. Um, and when it comes to question time at the uh, end of the session, uh, a microphone or two will be roving around, so please wait for that before you ask your questions. Um, the form for tonight is that um, each of our speakers is going to speak for about um, ten minutes, and then we'll expect we'll talk amongst, our, talk amongst ourselves for a little bit, and then we'll throw open the discussion to you, the audience. Um, we should finish, I hope, by 8 o'clock, and after that, there will be books for sale outside, and the panellists will be here to sign those books. I'm not saying which books, but they will be here. And there will also be a drinks reception, so we heartily hope you can join us for that too. Um, our first speaker, Stephen Fender, was born in San Francisco and worked as a teenager alongside Okies on ranches. Formerly Professor and Chair of American Studies at Sussex University, he is now, as I said, Honorary Professor at UCL, and his most recent book, Nature, Class and New Deal Literature, includes a long chapter on Steinbeck. Stephen. Thank you. Speak up here, yes. Good evening. I'll make this as short as I can. I have one small film clip to show, which is crucial to my argument. Now, you all know the American Great Depression during the 1930s. <clears throat> Industrial production fell by 45%. Farm prices were down by 60%. And one in four of the working population, that's the working population, not the general population, were out of a job. Uh, these were all sorts, of course, uh, from tenant farmers to garment workers, from quarrymen to steel workers, not forgetting small business people and other white and people in white collar occupations. But for some reason, and itself is almost it, this is itself worth an article or something. Uh, the popular memory remembers only one, or in the popular memory, there's only one narrative, and that is, of course, the Oklahoma farmers blasted off their land or by drought, by dust, and forced to um, trek westward to, the, to find some sort of work in the precarious work in the uh, huge, highly specialized ranches in California. Now, the source of Steinbeck's power, and also, I think, his abiding weakness, was to sympathize with these migrant farm workers as victims, victims of the farm owners, 
uh, victims of the banks that constrained the farm owners in turn, and above all, this is perhaps stranger, uh, victims of natural forces, drought, of course, dust storms, but also flood. Flood becomes very important um, in, the, in the narrative. And the source of his technical strength, not sufficiently recognized, I think, was, um, was his journalism. Specifically, in this case, his visit to the government camp for migrant workers in Arvin, near Bakersfield, at the foot of the great San Joaquin Valley in California, in late summer 1936, which led to a series of articles called The Harvest Gypsies, published in the San Francisco News, an evening paper, a pro-labor evening paper, Scripps Howard paper, published in the San Francisco News on between October and 6 and October 12th of that year, 1936. What he found and reported were the dire conditions of those migrants forced to camp besides irrigation ditches, uh, the damp, the cold, the lack of nourishing food, the illnesses, the lack of medical care, the general misery. The indifference and even hostility of the farm owners uh, but the government remedies, uh, which he of course approved, like the provision of so-called sanitary camps for farm migrants, which offered uh, cabins or tents, uh, on, or tents on platforms, or, and, and bathrooms and showers, community activities, childcare, basic medical care, and most important of all, immunity from farm owners' vigilantes coming in to break up union organizations. And the series of articles ended with a, a degree of hope for the future in the government provision of more camps uh, of the same sort and of subsistence farms to allow the migrant farmer families to produce their own fruit, their own vegetables, and their own livestock. Now, The Harvest Gypsies was one of the finest works of journalistic investigation to come out of the Great Depression. With its closely observed detail, selected both to inform the reader and to pique his or her sympathy and interest. Uh, with its authoritative general analysis of the economic and political context behind the problems and its practical solutions as to what the, how the problems might be sorted. And the same combination of detailed and general observations when put together with the moving saga of the Jode family made The Grapes of Wrath the large-scale drama of historical process, which his earlier novels had not been, nor his later ones, actually. This sense of historical process, of a, I won't call it epic because it doesn't end like an epic and it doesn't uh, have all the features of an epic, but certainly this, said, this, this sense of all-inclusive historical process is conveyed by the mixture or the sandwiching between the narrative of the Job family these, with, the, with these documentary interchapters um, which, are, which reflect on the, the actual um, the process, the, the, the business of migrants streaming west on, uh, on Route 66 um, and the, um, the, 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 the bankers and the, and the canneries lying behind the general uh, constriction of wages and the, the large-scale farming. These are all general observations which came from his journalism. And particular, too, a particular thing like this little passage about used cars that they had to buy. In the towns, on the edges of the towns, in fields, in vacant lots, 
the used car yards, the wreckers yards, the garages with blazing signs, used cars, good used cars, cheap transportation, three trailers, 27 Ford, clean, check cars, guaranteed cars, um, free radio, car with 100 gallons of gas free, come in and look, used cars, no overhead. It's a brilliant piece of par- parody, really. I mean, apart from the imperative come, there isn't a single verb, but there are dozens and dozens of flattering adjectives. It really catches the spirit of that desperate hucksterism trying to exploit the Okies on their way west. But I think the historical process went only so far. Even before we got into writing the novel, Steinbeck was determined to have the Jodes end badly despite their fortunate encounter with the government migrant camp based on Steinbeck's own hopeful impression of the camp in Arvin. First of all, the family falls apart. First grandpa dies, then grandma. Then Connie and Noah, the preacher, defect. Tom has to go into hiding because he's killed a man. And finally, they're cut off even from the next generation as Rosa Sharon's baby is born, is stillborn. They finally end, the family finally ends in the novel, backed up by a flood against the wall of a barn with nowhere to go, either in time or space. Their future as stillborn as the baby. Historical process, um, chronology, um, is swallowed up by apocalypse, chirology. Chronos becomes kairos. Now, when he came to make his great film of this novel, a year later, John, well, it came out a year later, John Ford, John Ford was having nothing of this ending. Here's how his, I believe, truly great movie of the book um, ends. Uh, sorry. It's just the last few minutes of the film. In fact, fragments of Ma's speech do occur in chapter 28 of the book when Ma says, people is going on, except, of course, that the Jodes aren't going on. Now, not only Johnson, the film scriptwriter, puts them back on the road at the end rather than backed up in a barn, um, underway, off to the next job, and adds the definite article to Ma's people. It's very important. She converts Ma's people into the people, as in, we the people, the first three words of the American Constitution. Now, and those are the last three words, the last words, we the people, we are the people. Now they are the American demos, nothing less than that. They actually are the the people of the country. Unlike John Ford, Steinbeck felt he needed a symbol of sacrifice. Rosa Sharon's offering the starving man the milk of her stillborn child, a sort of Madonna figure in literature to match the famous or infamous migrant mother image of Dorothea Lange. You all know it. I'll just flash it about here. This one here. You all know that, don't you? You've seen it's been on postage stamps even. One of the most widely reproduced pictures uh, ever. Um, Now, Lang, who's a wonderful photographer, also liked to emphasize blockage, just like Steinbeck. A lot of her pictures show cars broken down by the side of the road, people trying to get them fixed to get to the next job, or even cars holding up or forming one side of a tent 
for the people to live on. Cars, cars immobilized to express the irony of the Oki's economic and social blockage in an age of mobility for other people. She drove into a migrant pea pickers camp in Napomo, California, not far south of Santa Barbara, aimed her graflex um, at a canvas lean-to in and around which her women and four children were sitting. She had only six plates left. Finally, she got the shot she wanted, wanted the mother with the baby, uh, which you've seen here. The mother with the baby on her lap and the, um, the two children, um, as it were, hiding from the camera, um, facing away. Um, afterwards, she wrote a caption. We wrote several captions, and this is one that she sticks. The Pomo, California, March 1936. Migrant agricultural workers' family. Seven hungry children, mother age 32. The father is a native Californian. Destitute, none of this is true, by the way. The genealogy is all wrong. Destitute in a pea pickers camp. These people had just sold their tent in order to buy food. And a later addition to that same caption, they had just sold their tires, the tires from her car, to buy food. Now, if she spent a little longer in Nipomo, she might have discovered uh, what the truth was. First of all, Florence Thompson, that's the lady's name, uh, not that, not that uh, Dorothea Lang had asked it, was the mother of ten children by three men. She was a local organizer for the Cannery and Agricultural Workers Industrial Union, so she had some agency. On the day she was photographed, her then-husband and two oldest boys had taken the radiator off their Hudson car to get it repaired at a local garage. So they hadn't had to sell the tires off the car, and they hadn't had to, to sell their tent, but instead had, had struck it and packed it away in preparation for leaving the next day, the next morning, for Watsonville, California, 140 miles north on Highway 101, to work in the lettuce harvest. In other words, they were mobile, not blocked, just like the Jodes in the Ford film. They were self-reliant. They were part of the physical, economic, and political process, not stuck as passive victims on the sidelines. So finally, to summarize, Steinbeck, I believe, was a great journalist, a great writer, but maybe a little too concerned to create great literature, as Ezra Pound used to call it, too, too anxious to get the symbols in and a little too smitten with the conventions of California literary naturalism in which all human agency comes to naught. Thanks. Thank you very much, um, Stephen. Our second uh, speaker is John Sutherland, Emeritus, Lord Northbrook, Professor of UCL. His recent books include Lives of the Novelists, from which I learned that Steinbeck's former high school teacher did not consider The Grapes of Wrath to be an authentic book. And his most recent book is Jumbo, the unauthorised biography of a Victorian sensation, an elephant. He also chaired the Man Book Prize Committee in 2005. John. Thank you very much. I'll uh, keep my comments fairly short because I only got one thing to say and I suppose it could be summed up in paraphrasing uh, Steve's very eloquent um, he knows a lot about uh, the Great Sorrow uh, very eloquent uh, presentation namely we the white people 
Now, my, my comments are very influenced by an article by a critic called Charles Cunningham uh, called Rethinking Politics and the Grapes of Wrath. Now, what Cunningham says is the novel scarcely mentions the Mexican and Filipino workers who dominated the Californian fields and orchards in the late 1930s. I taught for a quarter of a century, 25 years in California, in Southern California, not Northern California, uh, Steve's turf, which I think is where the, the Jodes end up in picking grapes. Um, and I taught many years in and out um, uh, the Great Sir Roth. I was at the uh, California Institute of Technology, recently honoured as the best university in the world. I'm sorry, LSE. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, it's full of extremely high-performing uh, scientists, uh, from the undergraduates to the Nobel, they have four Nobels on the uh, on the faculty, uh, the Nobel uh, uh, staff. Now, um, it, it's quite interesting because it, it, these students are very, very bright. They knew sod all about literature, nor did they, but they had to get their A's in in literature as in everything else if they wanted their four point four point one uh, grade point averages. That four point one is north of north. It usually finishes at, at four, but they go they go a, a grade higher at Caltech. And so I would set them little little problems. Now, uh, Steve very fully explained the symbolic, if it is, or that sort of uh, realistic uh, ending of, of Grapes of Wrath when um, Rose of Sharon, who's recently had a miscarriage, offers her, her breast. She's malnourished, of course. One doesn't know how, how much she's lactating. Offers her breast to a starving man. Uh, he's an oaky, like her, we assume. Um, and the moral, clearly, is only the poor can help the poor. The government doesn't help. Certainly the, the ranch owners don't help. And the problem I set them was that if a woman gave her breast to a starving man, how nutritious would that be? And how long would that man, as it were, sustain his life uh, with that liquid um, uh, coursing through his, um, through his body? I, I, the, the, the number they came up with was 850 millilitres. Apparently, if, 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 the, if the starving man was lucky, probably less. Um, and that it would be bugger all use in keeping him alive. So we have to read it as a symbol, uh, not as in any sense a kind of a, a life-saving uh, act of mercy on her part. But then when I was you know, talking about this in the usual Professor Noel way, um, I should say that uh, some 70% uh, of the, the student body, undergraduate student body, is Asian-American. Um, an Asian-American undergraduate piped up. Do you think she would have given her given him her tit if she'd been a, if he'd been Chinese? Um, and it was it's a very good question. Supposing he was African American, would would she have done it then? Um, supposing he was Filipino, there were Filipinos all over Mexican even. Um, it, it, it's very it's a very very interesting question I think. Now running right the way through uh, the grapes of wrath is this kind of vanilla. Uh, view of, uh, of, of what the people, their hardship are. Um, Ma Jode, if you know the novel you remember claims that the Jodes go right the way back to the sons of the revolution and um, God help us there were no Mexicans, African Americans Filipinos or, or Chinese were, were, uh, uh, in, on, the, on the Mayflower 
Uh, a lot of the Okies who came there, again, these statisticians actually all mess up novels for us, but these statisticians say a lot of the Okies that came to California were urban. That's to say, they didn't all come, you know, in their Hudson sort of uh, uh, pickups, you know, sort of from the field, from their their kind of sharecropped fields. Uh, they they came from towns, Oklahoma City, places like that, where in fact there was no work, uh, and in fact they were sort of pulled across by the prospect of seasonal work in in the West Coast. These, in fact, are not things that, because in fact he's an artist ultimately. Uh, these are not things that, that, that Steinbeck, it seems to me, fills out in, in, in the novel. Now, whether or not that, to some extent, sort of disqualifies the novel as, as worthy of our respect is, is, is another question. But there's another thing, as Steve mentioned, the, the camps, the, the resettlement administration camps. And one of the managers of these camps says, the people, that's to say the working class people who are getting by in these camps, the people are of good American stock. The word stock, of course, takes us back to breeding, and there's no question that, in fact, he's talking about white people. Now, it, it, it's very interesting. I mean, it, it, the, the Greats of Wrath had a huge impact when it was first published. It published in 1939. It's as old as I am. It's very interesting the ways in which works of literature, muckraking works of literature, social problem novels in the, uh, in the British context, such as Dickens, that they, they age and they lose, you know, they've got a kind of half-life. That half-life, as it were, sort of, you know, bleeds away over time. Um, Abraham Lincoln, for instance, is supposed to have grasped the hand of Harriet Beecher Stowe and said he wanted to hold the hand of the little woman who started a great... You cannot imagine Obama, assuming that H.G. Wells' time machine brought Mrs. Stowe all the way to the present White House, but he's with the 49th president. It, you can't imagine Obama shaking a hand because Uncle Tom's cabin is not... The un- term Uncle Tom is a term of abuse. Yeah, he dies, uh, really sort of still sort of talking about his... Or really sort of thanking... Not quite thanking his his master, but forgive, forgiving his master. That, that novel, which in fact was huge, explosively potent um, in, in the early 1850s, uh, oh, sorry, and of course, in fact, was in some sense a, a, a kind of sort of a, a detonator for the American Civil War, is now, in fact, a source of embarrassment. Uh, I, I, you, you, it, it is still taught, but it's, it, it's almost like you were picking it up with tongs because, in fact, you know, so it's, it, it's difficult. And it seems to me that, that uh, at 75 years old, we can say that, that terrific as it was in its time, novel, of course, means new, terrific as it was in its time, that novel of Steinbeck's has lost a lot of its... It's, it's kind of potency, it's kind of, it's, 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 if you like, explosive uh, uh, quality. Um, and so we have to see it, it seems to me, with a certain kind of sort of, as it were, relativity. But that's not to say that it isn't a great novel and that if we approach it in the right way with the right kind of you know, place setting, uh, it, it doesn't still work. It does. But it seems to me the question that we're left with is, where are the Mexicans? Where are the Filipinos? Where are the Chinese? They're not mentioned anywhere. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, John. Um, uh, excellent questions, which I hope people are going to try and grapple with there. Our third speaker is Patrick Flannery, uh, born in California in 1975 and raised in Omaha, in Nebraska. He studied film in New York and 20th century literature in Oxford, 
His first novel, Absolution, was published in 2012, and his second, Fallen Land, last year, was just out in paperback. Thanks, Michael. So I've, I've taken the, the brief of the festival that's sort of at its face value, and this is a kind of memoiristic reflection more than anything. So uh, as, you, as you might begin to sense, The Grapes of Wrath is a novel that divides critical opinion to a certain extent, and admittedly its symbolism is often heavy-handed. The dialogue is stilted and sometimes maudlin, the politics obvious, its leftist credentials unambiguously clear, and this, some critics believe, is not in its favour. On rereading the novel earlier this month, however, I was surprised at how much of my own relative's language I could hear in the Jode's speech, and unsettled to think how devastating the word oaky must have been when, as a child, I used it against my grandfather. Oaky, as you may know, was the term of abuse hurled at the migrants from the southern plains who, like the Jodes in Steinbeck's novel, fled the Dust Bowl, which is to say drought and a rapidly changing agricultural economy in the 1930s that displaced them from their farming livelihoods. And they drove, hitchhiked, or rode the rails to California, lured by the false promise of an easy life picking fruit in an earthly paradise out west. And I am, in some sense, the grandson of such Okies. My grandparents on both sides came from Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas, and Kansas, and although they were not agricultural workers, in their lower middle class way, they left the states of their birth, moving to California in search of a place where, as Steinbeck's Ma Jode dreams, one might have a little white house surrounded by orange trees. My maternal grandfather, an Oklahoma-born civil engineer with an eighth grade education, built his own White House on the edge of a small agricultural town in California's San Joaquin Valley, a house near enough to farmland for the vineyards to be within sight when the house was erected, an orange tree planted in the backyard, a date palm in the front, the Sierra Nevada mountains visible from the kitchen window before the smog of traffic and industrialized farming drew a near-permanent veil over all but the closest foothills. As a child, I knew that my grandparents had been migrants, and that they had become, through some strange process of social alchemy, junior members of the establishment, Cadillac owners, Presbyterian church deacons, members of the local Masonic guild, owners of a holiday cabin in the mountains. But nonetheless, the fear of losing everything, undoubtedly fed by memories of the sod house where my grandfather grew up, the youngest of nine children, and the farm from which my grandmother in Kansas had ridden miles to school on a horse, was present until their deaths, discernible in the small economies that they made and in the small luxuries they allowed themselves. They took gambling trips to Nevada and played the California State Lottery, dreaming of elusive riches that would banish forever the fear of loss and ensure that their children and their grandchildren did not inherit a similar fear. When I was 10 and staying with my grandparents for the summer, my grandfather and I were alone in his Cadillac one day, driving through Dinuba, the small town where they lived, where my, gra- where my mother had grown up. He casually spat a racial epithet against Mexicans. I'm not going to say what the word was, but it's a word coined to play on their migration across the Rio Grande River, hoping, I think, to get a rise out of me. Instead, I turned to him, and in a moment of cold childish cruelty marked by a precocious understanding of all that the word meant, called him Oki. He fell silent. He had no retort or defense. We drove back to my grandparents' house without speaking, I was not punished. Nothing more was ever said about it. The shame, I suspect, was too great for him to bear revealing that his grandson had called him the worst possible name 
for a man who wanted to forget he himself had once been a migrant, who did not care to imagine that he was remotely the same as those Mexicans or Filipinos or whoever else who had taken the place of poor whites from the Great Plains in the Californian fields and orchards, or who were already there to begin with. It is a truism that California has long functioned as a, as a microcosm of America. Migration, politics, wealth disparity, ideological divides, the progressive coast, conservative center and libertarian mountains, its agriculture and industry, mountain and coast, farmland and desert, great cities and small towns, unchecked suburban sprawl, wilderness that even today remains remote. More than this, California might be said to have invented America's 20th century vision of itself and shored up its illusions. Hollywood's Fordist entertainment industry has promulgated the dream that anyone can be anything, while the truth is that the deck has almost always been loaded. Revealing California as anything but an unalloyed golden state, and golden state is its, its kind of nickname and motto, for those of you who don't know, the Grapes of Wrath went some considerable way towards exploding this myth at the moment at which the myth-making industry was getting into its stride, and by analogy demonstrated that the libertarian American dream of infinite riches through individual effort in an unfettered market was patently unfair. One could argue that it would have been dishonest for Steinbeck to have written a story of agricultural migrant workers in Depression-era America without depicting the threats made against labor unions or the charges of red agitation that were as much a part of ordinary social discourse, at least in my family, as discussions of love, marriage, death, and children. Appearing in 1939 in a climate already hostile to communism and socialism, a novel so obviously of the left was bound to be thought strident by some. Steinbeck's was the first truly political novel I ever read, encountered at the age of 16 in a high school English class taught by a charismatic teacher who had a line in leather jackets and jeans, who encouraged me to write my own stories. It was the first novel I read about places I knew, and it was a book populated with the kind of people I could find at the fringes of my own family and deep within its collective memory. In retrospect, I can see how The Grapes of Wrath made me a writer in ways that work by Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Dickens, encountered around the same time, did not. I write political fiction, which is to say that I write novels attentive to the political and the often shifting boundary between the political and the personal. If my own sympathies show through the artifice of fiction, that for me is a sign of success. I would not want to be taken for a conservative, but neither would I wish to be seen as a writer whose politics is uninterrogated or uncritical of any number of social orthodoxies across the ideological spectrum. The novel I'm finishing now is as political in its own way as The Grapes of Wrath, dealing with the Red Scare of the 1950s, specifically the Hollywood blacklist. It is in conversation, if not with Steinbeck's novel per se, then certainly with its spirit, its vision of American myth-making and myth-breaking, its sense of the place of California in the mid-century psyche. In fact, the most conservative character of all in my new book is a farm girl from Kansas who has reinvented herself as a Hollywood starlet, shedding her left-wing past to embrace the conservative present, responding to the exigencies of the studio system's collaboration with right-wing ideology in the 1950s. This character is, in a sense, a Joe daughter grown up, married well, and turned into a cold warrior. She has found a way of forgetting her past and protecting, she thinks, her future. She's also an extreme version of my grandparents, whose childhoods were hard, who could not go back, who did not want to be shamed by association with the down-and-out Okies, for whom the American dream had not yet and might never come true. 
For the American writer of the left working today, Steinbeck's is a complex legacy. While one might not wish to follow the same paths of social realism, and I certainly do not, it would seem both disingenuous and irresponsible to ignore in fictions of contemporary life the inequalities running rampant over the ruins of Western social welfare, the very systems of security put in place to protect people like Steinbeck's displaced sharecroppers. Thank you very much indeed, Patrick. Our last speaker is Maggie G, who some of you may have heard yesterday battling the bankers on the radio in the start of the week. Um, she has written 12 novels, including The White Family, shortlisted for the Orange Prize and the International Impact Prize, and two linked satires about Britain and Uganda, My Cleaner and My Driver, very highly recommended to me. Um, she's Vice President of the Royal Society of Literature and was its first female chair of the council. Professor of Creative Writing at Bath Spa University. She has a new novel coming out this summer, is that right? Yeah, June. With the intriguing title, Virginia Woolf in Manhattan. Well, good evening. Um, and I hope it's not too hot and sleepy in here. Um, well, I seem to be alone among the speakers in thinking Steinbeck is absolutely amazing and brilliant and not feeling obliged to apologise for admiring him um, I think I have to begin by saying that I think Steinbeck would have been appalled to hear John Sutherland's account of him as racist um, and I'd like to give Steinbeck a quote on uh, I think we should have a reverse strike And Steinbeck said that literary criticism is an ill-tempered party game in which no one gets kissed. (laughs) So I offer you that. Um, But just in terms of um, scholarship, I think I should point out that um, Steinbeck wrote an article called Starvation Under the Orange Trees in 1936 where he said Chinese, Japanese, Mexicans, Filipinos were segregated, herded like animals, and pointed out that if there were complaints, the leaders were deported. He was consistently against racism. Um, In Travels with Charlie, there's an amazing description of um, him watching white mothers um, harassing a lone, brave white father who managed to take his child into the newly segregated schools. And there's a passage there of such passion where he relates what the white mothers called, which was unspeakable. Um, And it was just thought by his publishers that 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 could not stand. And it was deeply, deeply offensive. But against racism, he was all the way through. And if you read The Grapes of Wrath with sympathy, you will see that when the gas station workers watch the Jodes driving away from their station and they start talking about these white Oklahomas and they say they ain't human to be that dirty. They couldn't be human. They're like, they're like gorillas. He's talking about the dehumanising of people and that dehumanising of people is of all people. Um, and I think Steinbeck was not a racist. He certainly wasn't a racist. It was merely that he was talking about the next wave of migrants and the next wave of migrants after these segregated and mistreated 
Chinese, Japanese, Mexicans, Filipinos were white. And he pointed out we can dehumanize anybody and therefore that's one reason for everybody to oppose racism because we, we are capable of dehumanizing any other human beings. Anyway, I don't want to waste all my time arguing with the panel. Um, I am going to read a small bit from a novel because one of the questions we were asked to address is where is, where is the wrath now? Um, and I would say that though a lot of the wrath is in theatre and in film, because these are the preeminent social cultural forms now in a way that they were not with Steinbeck. With Steinbeck, the novel still had a very, very central position. By the way, magnificent film too. Um, there is a lot of anger and a lot of protest going on in the novel, but the novels that do it are not necessarily the novels that are taken most seriously by the literary pages. Um, and there has been a long tradition. Um, in this century, we can go back to Orwell. Um, we can go forward through so many, so many names um, who are often treated as somehow different to the main tradition. They're the people who write about X um, because somehow writing about is something slightly dubious. We're just supposed to write. Um, but I look, at, um, I look at novelists like Maureen Duffy, um, and her great series of novels, all of which have a strong social dimension. I look at Faye Weldon, her witty, absurd, intelligent novels that show us what we are, as Maureen's do. I look at Doris Lessing and her amazing novels. I look at um, Jim Crace, who is able to write about human beings as a species in just the way that Steinbeck does. Um, Jonathan Coe, of course. I look at novelists like Bernadine Evaristo in Blonde Roots. Um, Stephen Kelman, Pigeon English. There's a huge tradition of writing going on now. And, of course, we have to reflect the anger because the anger is everywhere in our society. Um, and what Steinbeck points out is that, in the end, the hunger will turn to anger. And if we watch our welfare state being diminished any further, we will see hunger turning to anger in a much more dramatic way, which is something that, of course, um, Osborne ought to be thinking about when he promises further cuts, even after the economy has turned around. OK, now I'm going to read a very short passage to show that I'm not just talking about, I'm also a writer. Um, I wrote The Flood in the very long run-up to the war on Iraq, where we all knew what was happening, but we all felt somehow powerless to stop it. We could protest, but we couldn't stop it. Um, this is in a passage where, in my imaginary city, um, I should say, it's really, it was a Labour government at the time, as we know, so Mr Blair appears as President Bliss... Um, and the sense that we're going to war is symbolised by the floods which are rising all the time as they have recently the rains are going on all the time and people merely try and go on as usual when the rains stop for a few days the government announces a morale boosting gala now if you remember the Labour government was very big on galas sorry to say so but they were um, the gala the city must have its gala Eat, drink, for tomorrow you die, said some of the posters of the one-way cult. This was evangelical religion, which um, Steinbeck also has to go at. There were hundreds of them, 
They had cloned themselves quietly, effectively down in the dark through the long winter of wet and fear. They were human. They hoped. They bid for salvation. Now they would be saved while the others would perish. The rich, the lucky, the lovely, the sinful. Here's Lottie on cue, arriving with Harold in a pale velvet coat like frosted cream, her cheeks plumped out with designer hormones, her curls a crisp cap of sculpted gold, smiling, smiling for the cameras as she glides up the steps on Harold's arm. And that shining smile on a face that can't see them drives the protesters to a frenzy of hatred, though actually Lottie truly can't see them. She's short-sighted, and the lights are bright. Uh, All the protesters have come tonight. The anti-war lot are out in force with whistles and hooters and drums and megaphones, furious, howling with their longing for justice, trying to deafen Mr Bliss, Bliss into peacefulness. And the politicians who stream to the party in official cars and gleaming suits are feeling liberated from the floods. They squirm their rears into the soft leather. They snicker and wisecrack on their phones. They give salty quotes to the newspapers. They wave and give thumbs-up signs to each other. Not many really believe in Mr Bliss's war. Now the worst of the flooding is supposed to be over. Life is going to be fun again. Only the creme de la creme are here. The people the city defines itself by. The rich, the celebrities, the people who count. The styles and the faces that are known and copied. Stars, actors, models, beauties. The names in the blogs and the tabloids. Famous chefs and fashionistas. Ballet dancers and fancy hairdressers. Horoscope writers and football players. Game show hosts and TV presenters. Anyone who's anyone, my dear, is here. But so many of the city's people aren't here. The builders, labourers, the rat catchers. The door-to-door vendors of dishcloths and oven gloves. The sanitary engineers, the plumbers. The babies. The future hasn't come to the party. The past isn't here. The old, the dying. The illegals aren't here with their stuttering vehicles and missing documents, their second-hand clothes. The minicab drivers with their long, sad stories of study and exile their fags and their prayer beads, their hopes for a future unutterably different in a decent country with jobs and money. The minicab drivers are left at the door. Actually, most of the world isn't here. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Maggie. It's good to know that it's not just... um, Bankers were prepared to battle, <laughs> but critics too. Uh, so before uh, roving microphones, I just uh, a couple of questions uh, if you're here. Um, if I can, Stephen, come back to you. I, I wonder, it's very interesting to hear Patrick's account about just using that deadly word, Oki, against yeah. someone. Is this time at all? I mean, how does this fit with your... Memories of uh, growing up with Ranching. It fits very closely. I mean, uh, I think Patrick's talking about a second generation <clears throat> who are already have become assimilated one way or another, and, and, and oftentimes rather, I think, um, harshly into right wing politics, especially in the southern part of the state. Um, but you remember what happened to the, well, I remember the Yokies as, as amazingly gentle and nice people. I mean, I, I got to know um, one family who uh, 
um, called the, the um, Hutchinsons. Uh, Marvin and his wife, they had an old DeSoto they drove around in, but by this time they had, they had settled on one ranch, on one farm. They, they, they had set up a house there. They didn't own the house, but they rented it. And uh, they had two big strapping boys called Othar and Luther. Later on, I mean, I, for a long, first I thought that Othar was just some kind of name they came up with because it sounded good, but later on I realized, no, it had some bearing to, you know, Othar Pendragon, and they, they had got that idea from some Celtic mythology. And Luther, I think, was pretty, is pretty obvious because um, they were very devout uh, Protestant people. And Othar and Luther would go off to Fresno every weekend and... Um, you know, we, this is the honky tonks. I won't go into full detail, but uh, they were very, they were great guys. Uh, and, and I remember Marvin talking. He said, in a very original way of speaking. I and mean, he said to me, "So, what are you getting paid? So, what, what's Red paying you?" Red was the boss, and I, I told him some, some student-based, you know, some student-level wage I was getting. I was driving a truck most of the time, and he said, "Well, shit," he said. If I was getting paid like that, I'd fix me a wooden bill and peck shit with the chickens. <laughs> and I thought, you know, he just came up with that. And he had, you know, he had lots, they all had this incredibly inventive, I say not they, but, but the ones I knew had invented, to hear them tell a story, um, I mean, they had their own metaphors, they had their own figures of speech, and they weren't just some, some, um, uh, um, some sort of culture. Well, they were a culture, but the, the culture was to be invented. Yeah, I, and I'm not saying it wasn't a pre-literate culture or an a-literate culture. They could all read, all right, but um, it was a culture very, very focused on. Apart from anything else, I mean, the women were very focused on faith healers, on 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 um, uh, church services, which which involved audience participation, the way the black churches have always done and still do. Um, and and, uh, and the men uh, and, and and you know they would, they, they too would talk. I mean, I know, um, Marvin would say he really wanted to have a little farm where he could keep his own chickens, grow chickens, um, and uh, rather than work for someone else. So you know you you, you kept hearing uh, of mice and men. You know you kept hearing you know and well that's I, interesting hearing about John. You know as so makes other books. I mean maybe mm. you mentioned. I mean, this idea of dehumanizing these people. I mean, it's, it seems yeah. like I'm glad there's someone coming out with yeah. some uncompromising praise of the novel. Um, I think one of the extraordinary qualities is, is the way that it gives you this sense of the family and the, and the wonderful kind of humanity and the humour and the language, the cadences. And then you get a little snippet of people looking at them from the outside and calling them beasts. Yeah, okay. But I mean, yeah, exactly. And, and sort of horror. I mean, what's well, your sense of it? Yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I think he's not exactly calling them beasts. He's He's seeing that you see he's seeing it as part of biology, isn't he? Mm. Because he was very influenced by his friend Ricketts, who was a yes. a biologist. And it, as um, Vonnegut, I mean Kurt Vonnegut, another writer I hugely admire, also very influenced by science mm. through his brother. Um, and I think you know one of the interesting things about fiction is we shouldn't despise research, we shouldn't despise mm. facts, mm. and we shouldn't be too proud to know something about the world and to feel that we can say something about it. I think, really, the problem is the prevailing mode is irony and anxiety. So everyone's terribly anxious to be thought to be saying anything. And irony is the mode of people who are clever enough to separate themselves from things, isn't it? But if you look at what happens in The Grapes of Wrath, the greatest social evils come about when people separate themselves 
from the places where things are really happening, yes. when the owners have never worked on the That's farm, right, yeah. when the bank knows nothing about what's happening in the Dust Bowl, yeah. and he sees that separation as terribly dangerous. Well, um, and I think what Steinbeck is doing is trying to bring these things back together, yes. these real earthy comic individuals, mm. and the bigger picture where we're just human beings, mm. um, we're homo sapiens, where we are actually part of biology as... I mean, the animals are amazing. I think the animals and plants mm. in mm. the grapes of, of wrath. I mean, of course, no novel is perfect, God knows. But it's a, it's a huge forgiving form. Um, and, I mean, I actually very much admire the ending as well. I think it's an amazing image. Oh, good. So I'm um, speaking of the ending, too. That's very good. <laughs> yeah. what, what do you think of the ending, Patrick? Have you, did you say anything about this? I mean, Rotten symbol, uh, better I, in the film? What do you no, think? no, I mean... Uh, I, I come weighted with having read it as a, as a high school student, and so all the symbolism was taught in a very kind of didactic way. We knew who the Christ figures were, figure of figures. Casey was the Christ figure. And yes. Exactly. So that was the teacher's fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's not that we object. I mean, I, I just, if we could, never mind the symbol, there's so much, 98% of the novel is so overwhelmingly mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. I did not want to give the impression that I, I'd fallen out of love with it either, because I too no. first read it when I was a teenager, and uh, I've read it several times since, and I, I'm always imp- overwhelmed by the way it, the way it works. I, I was saying to Maggie before, I was surprised coming back to it because I'd forgotten all of the, the ways in which he's obviously engaged in, in literary modernism and the avant-garde. You know, they're, mm. they're very sophisticated, formal techniques that he's using, particularly in these kind of these interleaving chapters. Yeah, Dos Passos yeah. and Hemingway, and yeah, lots of, kind of yeah, a lot of um, attention to that sort of detail. Mm-hmm. All of his literary influences were bad. It was California naturalism that was mm-hmm. that was his only malign influence. There's <laughs> <laughs> so a history was, of this, which not many people, I mean, you don't want to bore people with it, but there is, you know, mm-hmm. and not so much Jack London, but uh, Frank Norris and mm-hmm. that sort, you know. Everybody has to end up chained to it a corpse in the desert or you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. John, is this true? Only malign influence? What's the novel before Grapes of Wrath that you might say it falls under the malign influence of scientific theory? Um, well, I would also need to ask you about, as the author of Jumbo, the elephant in the room, racism. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, racism's wrong. I, I, you know, I, okay. I sort of, um, I, I won't take issues. Uh, Maggie's quite right to call me on that. But there is, I think, a kind of ethnic uh, myopia. You were very determined to say it. Oh, I said it, okay. Um, but, uh, and, you, and you said what you said. But the, there is a kind of ethnic myopia there. And it seems to me that, that if you assume... I, won't, I think there are very great things in the greatest of Ross, by the way. And I think you know, Tom Jones is, is, is probably you know, one, of, one of the very good things, a kind of rebel figure, which didn't take time. But it belongs in a tradition, the muckraking tradition, which begins with, I think, I don't know if Steve will correct me, with pretty well The Jungle in 1905 by Upton Sinclair. It was Theodore Roosevelt, of all people, uh, who invented the term muckraker. He took it from John Bunyan, people that, that raked um, garbage in order to find something. But, but Theodore Roosevelt, it was about the meatpacking industry in Chicago, Theodore Roosevelt sent people to Chicago to check it out. And... Um, and they found it was even worse than Upton Sinclair uh, had said it was. So, in fact, that produced a very good result. And in two years, they brought out the Federal, um, federal clean, clean, clean Food Act. Mm. Now, Steve, again, knows much more about this than I do, but 
uh, Grapes of Wrath, it, it ends on a symbol, which is always to some extent a bit iffy. But in fact, um, later, I've, I've got notes on this, because I can't remember the, the names exactly, but um, the 1936-41 La Follette Civil Liberties hearings in the US Senate sent people out to see what was actually happening in California, and they supported Steinbeck. Yes, yeah. Eleanor Roosevelt, who did a huge amount of work for, um, you know, for, for, for migrant workers, and, uh, and also uh, Pearl S. Buck, who was particularly invested in the, the fate of uh, Chinese workers being left after they connected, uh, they connected the, the two coasts by the, by the railway coolies who were left effectively to rot. Um, so, in fact, Steinbeck's book did have an effect, and, and I respect it for that. Um, the ending, I think, is you know, very, very sort of squirmy making for me. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it is a book which had a punch at the time, and one respects that. But reading it now, I think it, sort of, it does have that kind of that blanking out of what was really happening in the fields and orchards. And, mm. uh, kind of I don't say that... I, mean, I, I talked about myself talking, uh, speaking to classes at Caltech. Outside, all the people... They were lovely gardens there. All the people working in the gardens were Mexicans. There were very few Mexican undergraduates. Very few. Um, and you, you can see these things still there. You know, mm. We have to open our eyes and look out at these windows sometimes. I mean, I think this is one thing I'd like to correct slightly, but I think you're right in general. The, you're the one who first told me that when Dickens satirized the circumlocution office in Little Dorrit, it didn't produce the Northcote Trevelyan reforms of the civil service. They happened first, and the novel came after. And if you look at the chronology here of the, of, of, of the kinds of in, inquiry that you're talking about... Happened in 36, 37, 38, and the book itself. It's, it's as though these books of protest are written not so much to produce a result, to, to produce a reform, but to, ce- but to celebrate it or to, to make it into a kind of ritual. It's hard to explain this, but, but oftentimes an author will see what's wrong. And Dickens, of course, attacked the circumlocution office in his, in his, in his journalism long before he wrote, you've got to correct me because you know much more about this. But I believe he did. And then, and then I think the, the circumlocution office, as appears in the Dorrit, is, is not so much a promoting reform as responding to it. And, and I think there's an element of that in Steinbeck as well. Okay, so we, we, we must stop. We, yeah, we've, we've come back to the 19th century. Perhaps it's time uh, <laughs> for you to ask some questions, make some comments. The roving microphone is right there. Uh, I think we've got a couple of points. We take some of the gentleman there in the white shirt, and perhaps we can take a couple more in one go, okay? So if you'd like to start. Well, well I, I thought there might be a mention of a, of a Steinbeck book that... Sorry, a bit louder, sorry. I thought there might be a mention of a Steinbeck book that's maybe more relevant today, which is in dubious battle. I think the uh, destruction of organized labor in the United States has been a, a key to what's going on there now. And I think that book it goes into a lot of that, it, it, even before uh, The Grapes of Wrath. Okay, that's a good point, I think. Can we get a couple from, from the front here as well? Sorry, the gentleman in, in the front row. And then perhaps could we pass it back to the gentleman? Hello there, Richard Bronk at LSE. I wanted to ask about the conundrum and the title of Where's the Wrath Now? The, uh, there's so much to be angry about, and yet in a way, particularly among the young, the wrath is not as evident as, as many people might expect. And I wonder if, and this is my question, whether the decline in the role of the novel as a central cultural phenomenon has something to do with that. I mean, thinking about the enormous cultural impact of the Grapes of Wrath that you were talking about, 
or of, in, in the case of a play, Kathy Come Home in, in the 70s, these um, had enormous cultural impact right across the population. And of course, there are wonderful novels and plays that do the same thing now, but perhaps it seems to me it's now reality TV, it's fly on the wall documentaries that dominate popular culture. And arguably, these don't allow us to empathize um, with the disadvantaged in the way that novels carefully crafted by great writers do in, uh, that engage our imagination. So is it the, the sad decline of the novel as a central cultural phenomenon that helps explain where the wrath has gone? That's a good question. Sorry, sorry, can we just go back to the gentleman there and then back to the panel, and then we'll take more from that corner in a moment. Maybe so the gentleman... Better get the gender balance right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. Uh, I was going to ask a very similar question to the preceding one in terms of the panel's analysis of arguably their lack of expression about the uh, way the sort of median income person's uh, life is going to be heading for the next few years uh, in this country. Why uh, less Ross? What are your opinions? And secondly, for those of us who, who are less financially afflicted and perhaps able to write, uh, do we have any particular responsibilities to foster that rough well. Thank you very much for that one. And would somebody like to reply? Maggie, would you like to reply? I, th- I think I'd like to pick up what the first gentleman said, which is that, yes, one of the things that Steinbeck is, is incredibly prescient looking back, because, I mean, consumerism. He shows how the Jodes get tempted when suddenly they have a little money and they're in a shop. Um, mechanisation. He shows mechanisation taking over, crushing the farms, the men turned into robots. And at the moment, I think the thing I would pick out to um, oppose would be the mechanisation, the tills becoming mechanised in shops. That's, mm. You know, thousands and thousands of low-paid jobs going, and yet people do seem to be accepting that. Globalisation, he shows the way the big banks and the big firms take over from the small ones. Um, all these things are incredibly prescient, I think. Um, when you talk about the decline of the novel, you have got to look not just at the, com- the competition, and we have to accept we're becoming a more visual culture, um, but you also have to look at what's happening to our industry. And those same things that I just talked about, i.e. globalisation, simplification of... You know, late capitalism is exactly what's going on in our industry, and as the big publishers buy up the small ones, and small ones, including my own very successful small publisher, 30 years in business... Um, Freedom disappears to a certain extent, freedom of choice. But don't think people aren't writing the books. Some of the people I teach are writing these books. And they're, you know, not taught by me. They were writing them long before I got there. It's happening, but will the industry, will late capitalism accept it? And I think in the States, the the political novel and and the novel of anger is is alive and well. Um, It's something like Dave Eggers' The Circle, which was out last year, is a deeply political novel. It's, it is in the form of satire, but it's, um, it's, it's no less political than the, the Grapes of Wrath. But so is something like Claire Massoud's novels, uh, The Woman Upstairs and The Emperor's Children, which are both, they're both post-9-11 novels in their very subtle ways, um, and, and are hugely angry in, in an incredibly powerful and beautiful way, too. I, I think what people are asking, though, or what lies underneath what they're asking is, granted, these books are being written. I mean, the two of you have produced two extremely powerful novels. I've read them and been overwhelming experience of the last week reading them. The question is the transmission, mm-hmm. you see, because you, you mentioned young people. 
I mean, by which, I mean, let's say literate, intelligent young people, students, for example, we've all, you know, we know students. They're, I mean, are they say, oh, God, have you read this novel by, you know, Maggie G? I mean, you know, I read Maggie G. I read uh, the, the people you're talking about, not as many as I should, but it seems to be that at the younger level, somehow, they're, they're not engaging, however good they are. They're getting their ideas. Now, whether it's um, reality television, which turns everybody into a specimen, like a freak show, like, you know, ben, well, obviously Benefit Street being the most obvious case. But Benefit Street, as it gets Kathy come home, what a brilliant uh, comparison that is. You know, uh, what, uh, just to, I mean, I remember Kathy come home and the effect it had. And think of Benefit Street taking its place. As well, part that's, a, that's an apt comparison. I'm just going to try and get some more questions. Well, I'm going to more some, yeah. So, but I think that's very. But also, there is social media. Let's not forget. Let's not forget social media. How can we forget social media? Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, I haven't forgotten you at the back, but let's just try and get. We've got two people down here in front of Rose, and then the microphone will rove backwards. Just want to save the roving microphone's legs. Hi. Um, just to very quickly say, I'm a student at Cambridge, and my initial project was to. Um, compare the grapes of Lot with the TV show The Office to show naturalism today and how it pays um, tribute to the ordinary worker. But, but I, instead, I've decided to temper it down to looking at novels like Daniel Woodrill's Winter's Bone and American Rust by Philip Meyer, which also show neglected white folk today. Um, so I definitely te- um, challenge that, that, uh, the charge of racism because Steinbeck was just showing... Um, that people could be disowned by their own kind. Um, yeah, Oki's, okay. yeah. Thank you very and much. And, sorry, we had to... So, so make one last... Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just about the sentimental, um, the, the charge of sentimentalism at, at, of Steinbeck and the last image of um, Rosa Shan feeding the baby. I, I thought that um, it, was, it, it wasn't put into the film because of censorship, right? And, but Steinbeck approved of those. He approved of the censorship. Um, and... Um, but it does have a very political, um, sorry, it's very political because it has Tom Jode. He, he has this, he, like Whitman, he says, wherever there's this hunger, whatever this injustice, I'll be there. And here you have Rosa Shan feeding the baby. And so you have the presence of Tom Jode, a very powerful political presence. So I don't think he was being sentimental. Thank you very much. That's a good point, I think. Sorry. Okay. I just, as I was listening to you earlier and listening especially to your purchases, I thought. I would just tell you a little bit what it was like to read this book in Portuguese in Brazil back in the late 70s, early 80s, when uh, we were living under a dictatorship and experiencing, as most countries in Latin America, a great deal of inequality which endures in our continent. And I was a teenager, I was in high school, many of my friends were also reading that, and in a way, the, uh, the as Vinhas da Ira, as I remember the title, you know, it was in a league with Zola, Germinal, and other great books who were able to mobilize our imagination and our need to transform our countries. So I think this is something I would like to raise because in a way it goes back to the problem of where are we now and how great books, despite the limitations, and can we really accuse Steinbeck today 
of not paying attention to uh, ethnicity, which is a very contemporary discussion. You know, I mean, he was talking about human suffering in a grand scale, and he was empowering my imagination as a young, uh, quite comfortable, affluent teenager who had to empathize and understand what was going on in my country, my continent. So I think this is the power of a great book. This is the power of the imagination and, you know, great Steinberg. Thank you very much. I think that's a very good point. Uh, Would you like to go to the back? Because I think there's a few hands up up there. We'll take a couple more before we come back to the panel. Uh, Yes, sorry, the gentleman. And then the lady at the back, is that right? Uh, Just briefly on uh, where's the Roth now and the young people. do people know that uh, currently on his world, ongoing world tour, Bruce Springsteen is singing a song called The Ghost of Tom Joad to stadiums full of people, 40 to 80,000, uh, and that that comes from, in part, Woody Guthrie working as musical advisor on uh, the Grapes of Wrath movie, then writing the Dust Bowl ballads, including a lengthy song called Tom Joad, which uh, Steinbeck said that little bastard perhaps uh, wrote 17 verses which covered what it took me three years to write and he did it in one night uh, Pete Seeger watched him uh, and that Dylan was greatly inspired Bob Dylan I mean was greatly inspired by Woody Guthrie including the Dust Bowl Ballads and read the Grapes of Wrath at school and, and Springsteen read the Grapes of Wrath at school and then was successively turned into a political performer by seeing the Grapes of Wrath movie getting into it, no, Dylan first, then the Grapes of Wrath movie, then Woody Guthrie and then Pete Seeger and those connections gone down and so, you know, it is uh, the connections, uh, both uh, both Tom Joad's song and uh, the ghost of Tom Joad that Springsteen sings are very direct in their connection with the Grapes of Wrath and include extensive quotes from Steinbeck. Absolutely, thank you very much indeed. Do we try and get a person from the back as well? Thank you, I think that's a very good point. The musical Roth as well. Um, hi, just as kind of a defence of my generation and the popular <laughs> culture that we experience, I don't know whether anyone in the room has ever read The Hunger Games, which is dismissed by everybody as basically young person literature and a bit rubbish. But the basic premise in the world of The Hunger Games is that there's a big capital which exploits the natural resources of these peripheral places, and in the end they rise up and seize control of the capital. And it's not lost on the people who read this book that this is very much a metaphor for the world we live in today. So I don't know, when I was reading The Grace of Wrath, probably, and then two months later watching this in the cinema, which has made millions and millions of pounds, been accepted by a lot of people, I just see the comparison. It's basically, it's almost in a way that The Grapes of Wrath is the first book, and then in a comparable world, it's what's happened after in the Hunger Games kind of thing. And so when I see Where's the Wrath Now, I don't look at problems in the UK and problems of in the Western world with, with inequality there. I look at problems in the world more generally and the disparity that between the developed world and the Western world and the changes we're seeing and they're like things like the Arab Spring, the global kind of actions we're seeing from the young people in those regions. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, can we take sorry, one more point from the middle there, the gentleman with the glasses before we come back to the panel. Okay, we'll come back to you. Sorry. Hello, good evening. Um, William Wall. Um, Can you hear me? Good. Um, Maggie, I very much enjoyed your banker bashing on Starter Week yesterday, (laughs) taking on Lot Turner. (laughs) Uh, 
It's really interesting. I think there's something missing in the question. Uh, I would actually add, where's the wrath in Britain and Europe now? Rather than just assuming this is a universal question. I say that because last night I couldn't really sleep very well. So about half past one, I was listening to Radio 4. I switched to the World Service. And the presenter was asking two people, one in Buenos Aires, which is facing 35% inflation, and one in Singapore. And she asked the, the, the consultant in Singapore, what is the sort of general economic climate atmosphere in Singapore? Do people feel angry about the executive pay and bonus or that? And he very candidly said no, because uh, they are in a different economic phase, younger generations. They don't have aging societies like ours. I think it's really interesting. The world is going through such... Transformation and transition all at the same time, the huge imbalances. And it's really interesting, a lot of things we perceive. Why aren't you angry? Why are you not angry with the global meltdown? You know, the city is, hasn't learned anything. I'm really curious about how United States, particularly, because I think a lot of these questions are very much Euro, Anglo-American centric, in my view. How, how is America looking at Wall Street? Or is it, oh, well, it's so long ago now, five years ago, and the economies have improved slightly. Europe is still on its knees. I think Africa, South America, and Asia really are not in this kind of realm mindset. They don't perceive the problems the way we do. As much as, yes, the banking, financial services industries are all global, uh, it's really complex. I'd really love to hear what, you, what, your, what your views are. Um, because if you take this question to East Asia, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, Shanghai, I don't think you would get the sort of similar reactions as we do in, in uh, the EU, Western okay. Europe or Britain. Thank you very much. I think that's a very good point. Maybe we're too lazily using the term globalisation sort of as a broad brush brush. We just take one more uh, point. Sorry, the gentleman's been waiting far too long on the front row. Sorry, I knew they'd be running involved at some point. And then it's um, hi there, sorry, uh, just um, a slight point of thought on the, an answer, again, from one of my dreadful generation, um, suggesting that actually, where's the wrath now? Um, I'd suggest perhaps an alternate view that rather than not having as much access to great novels, which as the panel have proven, uh, well, have, have uh, defended themselves and said, they are being written uh, in large numbers, I think it's almost that they're whited out by... Uh, in effect, to sort of go back to what the last um, speaker just said, uh, that in comparison to what the rest of the world is doing um, and is experiencing, they really are drowned out. You know, okay, there's, there's high unemployment and it's difficult for people my age to get a decent job, but as someone who's grown up with the news more or less 24-7, what have we had in the last few months? Well, we've had <laughs> typhoons, we've had people being gassed in Syria, we've had hundreds of thousands of refugees, people being shot in Ukraine. It's so constant that actually there's no time to get particularly angry about any given thing because the next catastrophe is on you and it's also so remote that you become eventually desensitised to it. But within that climate, surely when we read even a really great novel um, dealing with the sort of suffering and strange injustices that seem to rule our societies, it's put in very harsh perspective by what goes on internationally. Thank you very much. Well, can, I just, can I answer the gentleman at the back or try to? Um, I think that my creeping fear is that the wrath is really on the right in the United States in particular. If, if you want to see rage, it's in dispossessed white men. Um, and on the left, the feeling is despair. Because it, it feels as though everything is organized against mass mobilization at the same time that the right wants to tear everything apart. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm trying to think about the questions 
raised by the last but one speaker. Um, I think we have to be aware that it's all, it's all problems of perception. It's extremely risky saying, where is the anger? Because, you know, this is a very selective room that we're in. And um, probably the people in this room, quite a lot of them, have got less to be, as the panellists do, we have less to be angry about, in a sense, in our own individual lives. Um, but we're all part of each other, aren't we? That's the point. And therefore, in that sense, I don't think we can just even look within... We can't look within our own country. I've never thought I was writing within this country. And I've always made an effort, indeed, to... To go, to, you know, to try and understand other cultures, to to travel, and in a way, you write about all of these things. But you know, <coughs> think global, act local sometimes, um, and there is quite enough to write about here. There is a huge amount of injustice to write about here. There are also things to protect here that are not yet as bad as they are elsewhere. There are things to be held <coughs> on to that are disappearing all the time. Um, if I was, I mean, I think actually lots of young people are angry. I know lots of people who really admire Steinbeck and see it as seminal, see it as an amazing piece of literature. I also think there's a way in which all of the young people have a very, very good reason to be very angry with our generation who have pushed you into debt and then told you debt is very bad for you, you know, through. <laughs> and, and that's really, you know, how do we explain that? It's not good for you, but we'll have some. <laughs> Anything else from the panel? Well, I suppose a very brief answer to the penultimate questioner uh, is, of course, where where is the where's the wrath? Well, it's in uh, it's in Kiev, isn't it? Or it's in you know Egypt. We, we, we Egypt certainly. I mean, we, we we hear about it. We experience it one remove, of course. But there are plenty of angry people around. It's not always clear to what they're angry about. Or things change, and, and, and well, in fact. The, the media are great pains to explain to us what they're angry about, but certainly there is anger in the world. May, and it's often this, this sort of maybe globalization has partly got to do with the fact that other people do are, be, are getting angry for us, or you know that's just some kind of surrogate thing going on, rather like uh, rather like uh, Benefit Street, which I hate. I mean, I I hate all. Uh, well, never mind. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, good. Well, uh, we've just, to just very briefly, it seems to me that um, yeah, the, the, the angry work of literature is, is, is really sort of not very, very fashionable today. Um, I mean, I, I, ca- I came of, of literary age at a period when you know, angry young man was really the kind yeah. of... Um, you know, the description of, of, of work. It seems work. pretty tame now, doesn't it? It does, yeah, but they were opinion-forming at the time. Mm, but, you know, if you think of the thing that makes angry enough, a female genital mutilation, I can think of only one novel which actually deals with that issue. Does anyone think of another novel? Well, I'm thinking of two novels. We don't know which one you're thinking of. Which ones are you thinking of? The Colour Purple, where, in fact, the heroine decides to, to, um, to accept it as an anti-colonial gesture. Very, very kind of. I mean, that's a novel which is prescribed. The other one is a novel by a Somalian novelist called um, Sardine, called Sardines. Brilliant novel about a mother who rescues her child uh, from that that kind of uh, practice and, and, and operation. Um, it means, in fact, to some extent, you know, becoming a stateless person to do it. But in fact, people are extraordinarily angry, rightly so, about that. But where is it feeding into literature? 
Um, in the 1950s, it seemed to me these things did feel in. You look at a novel like Saturday, which is an anti-Iraq war. What happens at the end? A hamster dinner party. Yes. Exactly. Um, I mean, after a million people walk the streets, so then they say, oh, what wine shall we drink? Yeah. And they drink five bottles. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, it seems to me, is a nervousness. I mean, like, because I've got novels here. There's certain couple, practice, better, or practice, practice, they're more sophisticated than that. Uh, okay, thank you very much. Let's, uh, we've got time for a few more points. So, sorry, roving microphone. Can we take uh, the gentleman uh, with his hand up there, and then so the lady in the second row? Yeah, I, I think we shouldn't forget that the young people, notably students, were very angry in 2010, and what they got for their pains was uh, they'd seen people previously being kettled, so you couldn't even go to the toilet when you needed to, and then they, uh, some of them got smashed on their heads. Um, in their protests about the fees. So um, I think that probably happened in the 30s, but I think that's part of the reasons why young people may have chosen to watch reality TV. That's a good point. Okay, so thank you very much. Actually, young people don't watch TV very much. (laughs) Oh, yes, of course, they don't don't have TV. Sorry, could we get the microphone along here? The lady uh, in the middle, and then we'll we'll come round. I don't think it's very easy for novelists to write angry novels anymore. And I'm thinking particularly of J.K. Rowling and the the way that her novel, The Casual Vacancy, was received. Um, Whatever you think of it, it is a very angry book. And now, what has she done? She's retreated into writing crime novels. And that's just a great shame. And I think it was, in a way the way that book was received by the media. And obviously she was a target because of the fame, her, her own fame. Um, well, I think The Casual Vacancy was a very fine novel. And I read it, actually, in irritation at the patronising and stupid reviews, which made me think there must be something in this book. <laughs> um, and, and I do recommend to you that you read that. No, I read it. I enjoyed it. Yes. And what I'm saying is that it would have been good if she'd carried on, and perhaps she will. But she's now gone to writing. (laughs) She just ran this huge novel, and she's left. Okay. Okay. So let's move on. Sorry, was the the gentleman uh, just along the road, please? Can we have the gentleman in the front row? I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. We'll go back. Uh, The use of the word "wrath" shows the change of language between those years when novels counted and now they don't seem to have the same effect. Perhaps the talk should have been called Look Back in Anger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Two very quick things. First, just speaking as some one of those people who was kettled, um, we do exist, and in fact, it's things like Grapes of Wrath that are inspiring us. So uh, it's maybe older, but still there. The other thing is uh, Friday is part of the Literary Festival, we're putting baby boomers on trial. So <laughs> check out the event. There we go. I think Doreen Lawrence is still very angry, and we should not forget the Tottenham riots. That was anger on a massive scale. Well, may I see that's Maureen Duffy speaking, who wrote a wonderful novel in times like these about Scottish independence, which the literary pages totally ignored. So maybe we haven't got the critics we deserve rather than the writers. <laughs> Do we have any? <laughs> Gosh, it's definitely the critics getting it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, do we have one more point at the back? And then I think that is that our last one? Is anyone else? Oh, sorry, I'm so sorry. Right, there you go. Should we take one and then go back to you? Sorry, sir. 
It's a very brief point. Um, I've been living in Hungary for the last 15 years, and I think the categories left and right are um, under radical transformation, and I think we don't always know exactly um, what kinds of alliances we imply when we use these terms anymore, and we need to watch and observe and analyze how the very concept of politics is, is no longer bound by such categories as left and right anymore, at least not in Eastern Europe, and I suspect uh, in a broader context too. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yes, sir. The vice president. Yes, um, uh, one one of the panelists spoke of the negation of. Oh, sorry, a bit, a bit loud. One of the panelists spoke of the negation of agency in 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 Steinbeck, and uh, I'm not sure that that's actually true. I think that one of the um, um, uh, passages in the film which illustrates this much much better, I think, is the one where. Uh, the chap whose name I can't remember who's, who's treated as being a madman by their locals and a newcomer comes in and asks why everyone wants to know, what, you know why nobody wants to know him and uh, he said uh, the response he receives is nobody wants to acknowledge his existence because he reminds them too much of themselves the madness they see in him is a madness they want to see in themselves but they can't admit to and I think it's that that Foucauldian sense of agency which is most important there because in the Foucauldian sense it's cutting off the king's head you know we, we're obsessed with this individual concept but the real sociology of the Grapes of Wrath is the lack of individuality and the lack of humanity and I think that's something which didn't really come across in, in the panel's discussion Thank you very much. That's a lesson for the whole panel there. Uh, and um, thank you very much for coming and listening. I think we'll, we'll end there. We'll get out while we can. Um, thank you very much for coming. Please remember there are lots more events in the festival. You can see it all detailed in the programme. There are books outside. There are authors in here. Soon the authors will be out there near the books. Get the books, get the signatures you know what to do. And there will be a drink reception afterwards. Please thank our speakers.